If you have your Bible, please go with us to our Old Testament reading, which is also our sermon text. We're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I'll be reading a medley of verses today from the next four chapters. So yes, today, this is the first time ever that I've preached a sermon on four chapters of the Bible. So y'all don't have anywhere to be, do you, after this, right? No, it'll be a normal length sermon, I trust, but... Uh, We'll be covering a lot of ground. The reason why we're doing that is because these four chapters tell one continuous story that I I didn't want to break up. I wanted to give you the full scope of the story. And so I've tried to select verses that will tell you all the major points along the way. But it'll be good for you to have your Bible open throughout the whole sermon because I'll be referring to various places within those four chapters. So let's hear now the word of the Lord. We're going to begin at chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel and to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And now verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. And now chapter 5 verse 1, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And now to chapter 6, verse 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, And put in a box beside it the the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. 
Then send it off and let it go its way on and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done thus this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took the two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along the highway. Lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. And a great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jarim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jarim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. <clears throat> Several years ago, when Stacy and I still lived up, not on, but near Lake Collingsworth, we had to make that clear, we did not live on it, but near it. Uh, we would often see and, and watch the very big houses that are, that are surrounding the lake. Have you ever seen those? Many of them are very big. And there was one several years ago that was being built, and we watched it being built. 
Uh, it took a long time. It filled almost the entire lot uh, on which it was, and it, it kind of rose up high over the road, and it had all kinds of interesting and ornate features to it. We kept asking questions about it. I wonder why they decided to go with that color or that particular balcony in that particular spot. And, and, and the big question we asked often was, who in the world is going to live there? There's an assumption, isn't there, that when you see a great house or a grand house, that it must be a great person or a grand person who inhabits it. Isn't that an assumption? Someone important must live in that house because of how great it is. Now, we know that's not always true. Uh, Sometimes uh, not-so-grand people live in grand houses. Isn't that right? And yet, here in the books of Samuel... As God is preparing to build his kingdom among his people in Israel, he is preparing to live with them. And in God's case, for God to live there, he's so grand a person, he must have the grandest of all houses. A house that is built not by hands, a house that doesn't have stones or bricks or any other physical material. We're talking about a spiritual house, a house that is an attitude of the heart. That every person who knows God's nearness must have built within them in order to have God near them. In fact, what we see in this great story, this adventure of the lost ark, the ark that was found again by Israel, you have a little blueprint for the kind of house that God wants to build in our hearts so that he can live there. If you look at your bulletin, we're going to see a few aspects of this house, a few things that have to happen in our hearts to know the Lord. And this lesson, I think, is really important. I don't know this morning if you're here, and I don't know what you think Christianity is mainly about, but let me dispel a few things. Uh, Many times people assume Christianity is only a moral sort of standard. It's a moral code, you know, what you do and what you don't do. Well, I'm here to tell you, it is that. I think it's the most beautiful moral code you'll ever find. But it's so much more than that, I want to tell you today. Uh, Others assume Christianity is this doctrinal statement that I have to sign off on to believe these points. And let me tell you, it is that, and it's a beautiful doctrine. But it's more than that. Others think Christianity is about making society better. Let me tell you, it will do that, and it does and has done that. But it's about more than that. This morning, Christianity is about having a face-to-face relationship with God where you're actually living with Him, and He is living with you. You can know Him as a man knows a friend, and the glory of this God can overshadow your daily life. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God coming to dwell and build a house in us. So look at your bulletin. There are three things about the ark today. First of all, we see the Lord's hand, which we have to learn how to trace if God's going to live with us. Secondly, the Lord's holiness, which we have to learn how to humble ourselves before. And then lastly, there's the Lord's help, which we have to learn how to seek. So let's look first of all at the Lord's hand that we must trace. Uh, In chapters 4 and 5, where we began our reading today, where the story starts, Seven different times the writer mentions the hand of God. Seven times. 
Uh, a good example of that is in chapter 5, it's verse uh, 6. If you'll look at that where it says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors. And then a, again, another example would be just a few verses down where it says that the hand of the Lord was hard against the Philistines. This is a very important point. Seven times it says it. The hand of the Lord is heavy. Now, interesting point. The word heavy in the Hebrew is the same word as the word glory. There's no difference between those two words. Heavy means glorious. Glorious means heavy. In other words, when we describe God as glorious, we're saying he is of such immense importance that the heaviness of his presence weighs upon people. That's how important, he's a very important person. And so the Ark of the Covenant of God was designed by God to be a symbol of that importance, a symbol of God's heavy hand dwelling right in the middle of the people. When, uh, it, when Israel fought the Philistines, the Philistines won and they took the Ark away. And the Bible told us in chapter 4 that the glory of God departed from Israel. The glory departed with the ark because the glory had long since departed from Israel because we learned last week how they had been treating God. They had been treating him terribly. Remember Hophni and Phinehas? And their utter irreverence in front of the presence of God? Well, the glory departed there, but the glory went with the ark into Philistia and God's glorious heaviness weighed upon that people and judged them for the way that they too discounted the value and the importance of the Lord. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant is the supreme symbol of it in all of the Bible. Now, do you know anything about the Ark? Um, maybe the only thing you know is from Indiana Jones. Uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about it. The Ark's important. It's a very, actually a relatively small piece of furniture it was. It was only about four feet long. Two feet or so wide and tall. So it was a box, a rectangular box. Uh, it was made of the finest materials, cedar wood, and it was overlaid inside and out with pure gold, 24 karat. And uh, the gold made a crown around the edge. The gold also covered the cover which was known as the mercy seat. That was supposed to be the seat of God's throne, symbolically, right? And then there were these golden angels that had been cast out of gold. They were cherubim. This is a type of angel. And they stood there with their wings outstretched really wide, the wings that they flew with. And then there were wings covering their eyes and wings covering their feet, as if to say the angels are standing at attention in the presence of God, and God is so great and so heavy that they can't even look at him. They don't even want to show him their feet because they're ashamed because of how awesome God is when he sits on his throne. That was what the ark was a symbol of. It was meant to teach people to trace the hand of God in the world and in their lives. And yet notice throughout this story, people are treating the ark irreverently, and even superstitiously. Why had God allowed the ark to be stolen by the Philistines? Well, look at verse 3 of chapter 4. 
when the Philistines defeated Israel the first time, the elders of Israel ask a very good question. They say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? What a great question. And make no mistake about it, God had done it. God was behind it. God struck his people with a judgment by having the Philistines defeat them. But the next thing that they say is way off base. Verse 3, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it, do you notice that? That it may come among us and that it may save us from the power of of our enemies. Okay, so now the symbol of the heaviness of the glory of the king had become an it that was being used like a lucky charm. Uh, one writer describes Israel's theology in this chapter as rabbit foot theology. I like that way of putting it. God's sign and symbol had become like a lucky rabbit's foot. Oh, if we go to Shiloh and get it, and we bring it, and Hophni and Phinehas come with it, and they come into the camp with the ark, we must win. God must help us, because if you control the ark, you control God. Wow. Can you hear what they're saying? It's very ironic. The thing that was meant to show them that they could not control God was actually the thing they were using to try to control God. And so God let it be stolen and taken away, and the Philistines didn't do any better. When they brought the ark into their land, what did they do with it? Oh, it's, it's very superstitious. They take it and put it in the temple of their other god named Dagon, and they set the ark before Dagon, as if to treat God's ark as if it were a trophy of their victory, uh, another superstitious talisman to put on the wall of their house of talismans. Everybody in this story is ignoring the mighty hand of God. And so what does God do? He lets his hand fall even heavier on them to impress them that God needs no human help to recognize his heaviness. He can assert his heaviness just fine by himself. I love the humor of the story where they rush to the temple of Dagon the next day to go see how the ark is doing, and they're going to go worship because we've got a new trinket. Y'all to come to the temple today, we've got something new. It's shiny. And when they walk in, what do they see? Dagon is bowed down before God's ark. Now, they should have learned a lesson from that, but instead, what do they do? It's very funny. In, in chapter 5, um, it says they picked Dagon up in verse uh, 3. They picked him up with their hands and put him back in their place. What a mighty God Dagon is, right? <laughs> Who depends on human hands to place him back and prop him up so he doesn't fall over. Poor Dagon. The next day they come back, all right, today's going to be the day. We're going to worship. we got a shiny new trinket. They come in, and what do they find? Dagon again bowed before the ark, only this time it's even better. His head has been severed, and his hands have been severed, and the head and the hands of the statue are lying scattered across the threshold of the temple. 
Now, they really should have gotten the point right by now, right? Instead, what do they do? They say, oh, well, the head and the hands fell on the threshold. Well, that place is holy now. I declare a holy place where the pieces of my broken God fell. That ground is now holier than the rest of the temple. What a ridiculous thing. But it's an exposure of how ridiculous idolatry is. And how ridiculous superstition is in the world created by the real and true and living God. Everyone in the story is trying to use God. And so his hand comes heavy. They break out in these tumors or boils, the the Philistines do, and they begin to cry out. They begin to pass the ark from city to city. And everywhere they go, the boils break out. The mice start to infest the land and eat all the crops. It's terrible. It's like the plagues of Egypt all over again. Well, did they learn their lesson after that? No. The only thing they can do is say, well, we need to get the ark of God out of here. We don't want a God like this. Get out of here. And so they fix up this scheme where two cows are to carry the ark and they think, all right, we'll test this God to see how powerful he is. We're going to take these two cows who've just had their first calves. We're going to take their calves back home in Philistia, put the ark on the cart, and then we're going to see if these cows follow nature and go back to their little calves waiting at home or if they go against nature and march the ark back to Israel. Well, what does God do? He puts forth his hand again, and he guides with his hand these cows, and they make it to Beth Shemesh back in Israel. What's the point here? If we are going to be a people where God dwells, if we are going to be people who know God truly and face-to-face and personally, we have to be a people who learn how to trace his hand and not ignore his hand, or simply try to use his hand for our own benefit. Uh, those of you who've ever had teenage kids, or maybe you currently have teenage kids, do you like it when your teenage kids make plans with their friends and then ask you for permission to go? Mom and Dad, we've already set it up. We've got reservations at the restaurant. Their parents have agreed. Can I have the car? Do you like that? Has not happened to me yet. I anticipate it may soon. And I'm already mad about it, just thinking about it. So take note. No, because what does that do? It makes dad seem either like a, you know, pushover or it makes dad seem like an ogre because the plans that they've already made are going to have to get canceled because mean old dad doesn't give the keys over. Well, this is similar to the way that both the Philistines and even the people of Israel, shameful as it is, were treating God. And I want to tell you, we are capable of doing the same thing. We exalt our own hearts all the time, and we plan before we pray. I can't even count how many times I've done that. I plan and get everything sorted the way I want it to go, think it should go, and God ought to know because I thought it must be good. And then I go to God and say, God, help me. Go with me. Bring the ark and may it go with us. I use the Lord like a lucky charm to get the things that I want, that I've I've already decided about. 
And then when God's hand lies heavy on me to lead me to repentance and faith, I ignore his hand altogether and I blame it on other things. I pray to the Lord and ask him for help, but meanwhile in the background I'm making plans A, B, C, D, E, F, and even G on the chance that God might not come through. All of these things are of the same species as the sin committed here by Israel and the Philistines. God is heavy, a grand person, the grandest of persons. To live among a people, he needs the people to be willingly submissive to him and not self-exalting over him. Dagon's will fall before God. That's the first thing. The hand of the Lord lying heavy upon the people as they take the ark and pass it around like a lucky rabbit's foot. The second thing we see is the Lord's holiness. God's ark is returned by the cows, as I just explained. They send the cows, and the cows go against nature miraculously over the border and into this little town called Beth Shemesh. If you look at chapter 6, starting in verse 13, you'll see again where that story picks up. The people of Beth Shemesh are reaping the wheat harvest. So apparently this was in May or June of that year. That's when the wheat harvest is in Israel. It was during the festival of Pentecost. Uh, they were out having doing a lot of work, sweating, also rejoicing because of the crops that they were bringing in. And then to add to their rejoicing, they look over the hill and they see two cows, unaided by any human hand, coming over the hill. And there on the cart, there it is. The ark that they had lost, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, enthroned on the cherubim, riding into the little town of Beth Shemesh. How do they respond? Oh, they respond with joy. Oh, go bring the ark. Stop the cart. Tear down, call the priests in. Get them to take down the ark. Tear down the cart and cut it into pieces and start a fire. Slaughter the cows and let's offer sacrifices. Let's worship God. How excited they were that God should visit them with his ark at Beth Shemesh during harvest time. And yet there is a further lesson that the Israelites of Beth Shemesh needed to learn. Did you notice it? As we read it? In the midst of all the celebration, verse 19 of chapter 6, God struck dead some of the men there. In fact, it gives us the number. Seventy men were killed with a great blow, it tells us in verse 19. Why? Because they had looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now, people are disagreed over exactly what they did, and we don't know for sure. Some think they went up and opened it and looked inside of it, which you weren't supposed to do, according to Moses. Some think they may have just touched it, which you weren't supposed to do. Some thought maybe they looked at it greedily, as if it were, again, a lucky rabbit's foot that they could try to possess. Maybe these 70 men got together and thought, we'll take the ark and it'll be ours. I'll take it to my house so that I can have the lucky charm. 
We don't know exactly what they did. But whatever they did, they presumed that they had the right to do it. And God, with a mighty show of his holiness, demonstrates that they did not have such a right. The question that the Israelites ask in verse 20 is so beautiful. So important. I want to tell you, this is the most important question anyone in this room could ever ask and answer in their whole life. Chapter 6, verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? If we can't even look at the ark on our own terms without being struck dead, who can possibly know the Lord? How could God possibly live with us? How could he live with me? I'm a mess up. I'm a sinner. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I don't even know what to think half the time. How could God tolerate me if he can't tolerate this? What a question. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who can stand? Jesus once told a story that I think illustrates this very, very well. He said there was a wedding that a man was throwing for for people. He was inviting people. It was his son or daughter's wedding. And there was this group of people that came to the wedding and showed up, and they assumed at the reception that their seats would be at the very head of the room. And so this group came in and they went right up to where the bride and groom were to sit and they sat down. And Jesus says, don't you know, can't you almost see the embarrassment and the shame on their face as the groom and the father of the bride have to come up awkwardly to the table and say, hey, this is for the family. This was not yours. Actually, your name is on that table way over there. Can't you feel the shame of them as they have to get up and make that walk from the head of the table all the way to the end? Jesus sums up the story by saying this, Whoever exalts themselves, God will humble. But whoever humbles themselves will be by God exalted. The sin of the men at Beth Shemesh, whatever it was that they did, it almost doesn't matter. The core sin that was behind whatever it was they did was that they presumed that they could do whatever they wanted to do with God's holy art. They presumed that all those rules that God made about the ark, for some reason, they did not apply to me. I'm one of God's favorite special ones, and so I ought to be able to go up and do whatever I want to on my terms, my way, and God will like it. What happens to them is a reminder to all of us that that never works. Self-righteousness is deadly. Deadly. Literally, deadly. We cannot go to God pleading our own goodness and saying, God, oh, I've been good. I've been better than others. Look at the things I've done. Look at the things I haven't done. Lord, surely I can stand before you. Surely you can live with someone like me. I'm good. My life is a grand house for a grand God. You can't do that. You will be embarrassed 
by the Lord's assessment if you try. In the same way, we can't go to God pressing our own ideas. We can't say, God, I know what you said, but I think this. I know what you want, but I want this. You can't do that. The holiness of God precludes all of that. And the holiness of God requires that every person, whether you think you're important in this world or whether you think you're not important, every person must humble themselves to approach God. Everybody. No one is worthy to stand before God. No one can approach the ark. No one can have a personal relationship with God. No one. The hand of the Lord, heavy as it is, the ark of God, holy as he is, shuts every one of us out unless, and here's the big key, unless God is prepared in his mercy to provide another way. And so that leads us to our final thing, the Lord's help, which we all must seek. The people of Beth Shemesh said, hey, apparently we didn't get this right. We don't know what we're doing. Hey, Kiriath-Jerim, this, this nearby city, hey, y'all come over and get the ark. Maybe y'all can learn from our mistakes. And they did. And it seems like the people of Kiriath-Jerim learned. When they got the ark, they appointed a house of a priest, and they put the ark in the house on the hill, acknowledging God was king. They, uh, they appointed a priest to guard the ark so that no one could approach it again in an unworthy or unholy manner. They kept watch over it. They treated it with reverence and respect. And it tells us in chapter 7, verse uh, 2, that Israel lamented after the Lord. They cried. They wept. They acknowledged their sins. They confessed. They came to God with empty hands. And then Samuel, our friend, that we've been hearing about the last couple of weeks, Samuel came and preached a revival. He preached the gospel. Chapter 7, verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away your gods. Put away the Asherah and direct your heart to God and serve only Him. Be only for the Lord. Put everything else out of your life. All the lucky rabbit's feet, all the other gods, all the other strategies, all your own righteousness, lay it all down and receive what God alone is prepared to give you. Learn the lesson of Beth Shemesh. Come to God, not based on your righteousness, but based on God's mercy. Have y'all ever been injured doing an activity and you realized, I need to do it different next time? Or maybe not do it at all? Last Saturday, I trimmed the hedges in my yard, and the back hedges are Bougainvillea. Y'all know what that means, don't you? The thorns on those are about that long. They're beautiful plants, but they're a bear to trim. And there I am out there, no gloves, with the hedge trimmer, picking up all these things with no gloves. You may have seen it last week at the benediction. I had a big old, big old gash down one of my fingers. Maybe you didn't notice. It's, it's healed now. But I learned a lesson. As I was out there hurting, bleeding, 
I thought, you know, I probably should be wearing gloves. <laughs> Next time, I will definitely wear gloves when I touch the Bougainvillea. The people of Israel, when they saw those 70 men die, and listen, every one of us, if we try to approach God on our own righteousness, will die. Everybody. They learned the lesson. They needed to be appropriately clothed, appropriately gloved, not physically, but spiritually. They needed a new spiritual attitude, an attitude that was there to receive mercy. They didn't boast. They lamented. They didn't try to go their own way. Instead, they submitted. They didn't waltz up and do whatever they wanted to do. They asked the Lord to direct their steps and their heart. It was a different way of approaching God. And the Lord was there through Samuel to meet them with his mercy. And I want to tell you this morning, the Ark of the Covenant doesn't just represent in the Bible the heavy hand of God's judgment, and it doesn't just represent his holiness, which can't be approached. It also represents the help that God brings to his people. The ark was the place where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. It was sprinkled over the seat once a year. That's why God's throne is called in the Bible the mercy seat. Because God in mercy has made a way for sinners to approach him and live with him. If you think about it, the ark stands for Jesus Christ more than anything else. Jesus Christ is perfectly majestic. He is the very light of the Father in heaven's glory. Jesus existed before the world was made. He's always existed, the Son with the Father, showing forth the Father's beauty as King. And yet Jesus came into this world as if he were an ark in exile, across enemy lines, among the Philistines. He came as he lived with us. And he suffered, and he, he even went to the cross and was buried in the Dagon's tomb of death, where the God of death, who has tormented us all our life long, stood. And yet, on Easter morning, when we woke up and we opened up that altar, that tomb, what did we find? but that the God of death had fallen face down before the Lord of glory, that the head of death had been severed, the hands of death broken off and scattered along the threshold. Wow! That now a, a one better than Samuel had been raised up, and that Christ, where he now is today in glory, having defeated death, Christ, where he is, is there to lead us and pray with us that we might, too, turn away from our self-exaltation and away from our self-righteousness and go to God for mercy. Now, that's a mighty God that we serve. Better than any rival. And that is the God who wants to move in to our lives. Now, how do you know he's moved in? How do you know you're living in a real relationship with God? 
Well, it's going to look a lot like 1 Samuel 7. Trembling out of respect for God, but at the same time rejoicing at his mercy and acceptance. You may not have noticed this, but in the story, the the Philistines, when the hand came upon them, they trembled, but they did not rejoice. They didn't really know God. They trembled. They were afraid, but they said, get away from me, God. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't like you. The men of Beth Shemesh, when they saw the ark coming, they rejoiced, but they didn't tremble. Not nearly enough. But in the end, when the people of Israel had learned the lesson of the ark, they both rejoiced and trembled at the same time. That's how you know. You have a real, genuine relationship with God. If your relationship with God is all doom and gloom and judgment and you know, lightning from heaven and feeling condemned and guilty, you don't really know the Lord God. Because that's not what He is. If your relationship with God is all rejoicing but no trembling, you don't really know the Lord God because he is not your cheerleader. But if you're able to tremble at his holiness and also rejoice, now you know. You know him. And your life is becoming a house fit for a grand person. May it happen to each one of us by his mercy and grace. Amen.